Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Valves. Good evening and welcome. Tonight we're going to be talking about music, art and teaching with Mikey Georgeson. So join us as we explore the trials and tribulations of the music business, teaching as performance and developing student artists. Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Valls on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone and welcome to the Sunday Late Show, my first of the new academic year. This month has been filled with planning, admin and getting to know the new students who have arrived from various corners of the globe and their different education systems while trying to process the news that we all knew would come at some point this decade that Queen Elizabeth II's incredible reign had eventually come to an end that England's second Elizabethan age has finally closed and that King Charles III has now, at 73, assumed the role that will define him for the rest of his life. During the 10-day period of public mourning, we have been presented with an hour-by-hour lesson in the UK's unwritten constitution. The uniforms, processions and proclamations have reminded us that England and Scotland are two very ancient nations united under one imperial crown. The queues of commoners standing throughout the night on the streets of Edinburgh and London to glimpse the Queen's coffin seemed to affirm to me Thomas Hobbes's suggestion that the monarch is somehow a representative of us all. And the unprecedented television, radio and internet coverage of the past fortnight's events has underlined the degree to which we know much, much more about these royal lives than we did about any of those that went before them. Were the public lining the sides of the Mall as the Queen's coffin made its final journey from Westminster Abbey really any closer to the action than those watching it on television from the living room sofa, counting the medals on display and the reddened eyes among the chief mourning party? The Twitter commentariat briefly suspended their arguments over supplying pens to students in class to ask what might be gleaned from the malfunctioning of a royal fountain pen, whether or not King Charles's close protection officer had fake hands at the ends of each arm, and what feelings might be read into the face of the mute king as he received the revised words of the national anthem at his mother's funeral. How many people in the course of human history have seen quite so many royal faces at quite such close quarters on the TV screens that now grace many living rooms, bedrooms and spare rooms in the UK and overseas? Comparing the 50-inch plus 4HD flat screen widescreen coverage that captured the end of Elizabeth's reign 
with the 1952 black and white British Pathé film that documented the end of King George VI, shows us a British royal family that has become more comfortable with the formerly private rites of passage in royal life being made public. In 1952, television cameras were banned entirely from George VI's funeral at St George's Chapel, although the procession was broadcast on the BBC to the 1.5 million households then in possession of a television set. In 1952, pictures of the royal funeral and procession surely reached most of their viewers by means of British Pathé's cinema newsreels and the front pages of the national newspapers. The journalism of that time seems to suggest that opinions on public engagement with the ceremonies and protocols surrounding the death of the monarch appear to have been as hotly contested in 1952 as they have been this month. The Manchester Guardian's leading article of the 13th of February 1952 is a good example of this phenomenon. Penned by editor A.P. Wadsworth, it read, Many must have been disquieted in the last few days at the treatment of the bereaved royal family in photographs published in some newspapers. The technique of the close-up has developed greatly since the funeral of King George V in 1936. Largely under American influence, the newspaper photograph has come more often to make personal emotions matter for public exhibition. It is a bad tendency. It is not perhaps accident that the British press yesterday could be divided into two sections. Those who gave on greatly magnified scale a photograph of the three queens at the door of Westminster Hall and those who did not. Earlier in the week, there were other examples of this magnification, which in their exploitation of women's grief were equally unfortunate. These things are a matter of taste, but most people will feel that there are times when journalistic zeal for drama and pathos at others' expense can be overdone. A royal funeral we may allow is a piece of historical pageantry, but as Mr. Churchill's words remind us, it is a great deal more. It is not primarily a show for the spectators. Yet yesterday we could read in one eminent conservative paper the suggestion that the Queen herself should ride on horseback in Friday's funeral procession from Whitehall to Paddington. And why? Because she sat gracefully on a horse at the trooping of the colour and the king liked her portrait. This kind of vulgarization discredits the British press and the institution of the monarchy. Fierce words. I wonder what Wadsworth would have made of the BBC's close-ups of last Monday. None of the female mourners at Westminster Abbey were wearing veils comparable to those of the three queens in 1952. And while King George's procession had been filmed on a drab, damp London day that brought a natural darkness to the monochrome footage of the monarch's gun carriage being pulled through the streets of the capital, the bright late summer sunshine that bathed the procession of last Monday, gleaming on the helmets of the mounted lifeguard and the Union flag waving masses alike, certainly contributed to the sense that this royal funeral was very much a show for spectators. 
It was an event given meaning by the multitudes that watched it. It was an event that needed to be played out on a magnified scale because Britain is now a smaller power on the world stage. It was an event that was planned, practiced and delivered as the spectacle it had to be. Central to this sense of spectacle was the music surrounding Monday's events. As the Queen's coffin was carried into Westminster Abbey, the service began with the choir's beautiful renditions of the funeral sentences set by William Croft and Henry Purcell. The three hymns, The Day Thou Gavest, Lord Is Ended by John Ellerton, The Lord's My Shepherd by Francis Rue, and Love Divine, All Loves Excelling by Charles Wesley, made pleasingly dignified reference to Anglicanism's evangelical and Puritan traditions, as representatives from various Christian denominations gathered in what is arguably one of the established church's highest of high churches. Each of the readings was taken from the King James I Bible, and their stately rhythm worked well, even in the mouths of those readers who were, perhaps, less familiar with 17th century English than those present at the funeral of the previous monarch. There was space too, though, for innovation, for the English sacred choral tradition continues to grow its repertoire even in the 21st century. Judith Weir's setting of Psalm 42, Like as the Heart, from the Book of Common Prayer, was commissioned specially for Monday's service, as was Sir James Macmillan's anthem. Both pieces composed by Scots brought us the joy of hearing familiar words sung to new melodies and signalled the tradition has never been about stasis, but about deliberate, thoughtful development. There was space too for the familiar work of Hubert Parry and Ralph Vaughan Williams, composers well known to listeners of any of our classical music radio stations. The last post and reveal reminded us that the Queen was the Commander-in-Chief of the UK Armed Forces and the final congregation piece, God Save the King, doubtless gave many people their first peculiar experience of singing and hearing unfamiliar words to a familiar tune. My personal experience of watching the Queen's funeral was rather a strange one. I was unable to watch the ceremony live as I was accompanying a school Erasmus trip to the Czech Republic that straddled the half weeks before and after the state funeral. So while my students and colleagues were watching the coverage and observing various solemnities back in North Yorkshire, I was piloting a raft down a Moravian river with a mixed crew of students from Ireland and England in a flotilla consisting of German and Czech teachers and students. It was clear to me that my international teaching colleagues recognised the national significance of the events in Westminster and had organised a visit to an eco-village in the Carpathian Mountains that had been visited by our new king some years before. The week was predominantly spent gathering information on environmental initiatives in the east of the Czech Republic, while developing new cultural, intellectual and spiritual connections between the staff and students of our four schools. So on Monday evening, I sat down with my fellow teachers, Father William, Ilona, 
Daniela, Charlotte and Mactilde to watch the funeral and post-funeral procession on a laptop in our hostel while the students slept soundly in their rooms following their exertions of the day. It was a rare evening of stillness amongst the excitement of helping 20 teenagers adjust to the sights, tastes, sounds and smells of an unfamiliar country. I should say that both a water treatment works and an apple press featured on our itinerary. In the end, my abiding memory of this state funeral would be of my sharing some of the UK's strangest and most spectacular expressions of its national identity with four European counterparts, which, in the light of some of the generous tributes that were paid to Queen Elizabeth by European heads of state in the days since her death, all seems very fitting. I do hope to do a future show on the value of the Erasmus project, so we'll save a full account of my school party's adventures in the Czech Republic for a later date. But I should just offer a word of thanks to our host teachers Petra and Eula, who organised a fascinating, challenging and inspiring programme of tours, activities and meals throughout the week. It was a considerable pleasure to experience the workings of the Czech school system. It was also intriguing to experience total immersion in the German and Czech languages, which were the two non-teaching languages of the visit. Having studied neither language due to the dominance of French in my Devon secondary education, I will certainly be looking to pick up some words of German before the group reassembles in Bavaria later in the year. The main focus of tonight's show, though, is on music, composition and collaboration of a wholly different kind. What are the connections between the creative processes in music and the visual arts? Is teaching anything always a kind of performance? And how keen are UK universities to give creative departments the time and space they need to shape the next generation of creative people? Joining me to consider these ideas and others is singer, songwriter, artist and university lecturer, Mikey Georgeson. Hailing from Sussex, Mikey attended Worthing College of Art and Chelsea School of Art in the late 80s and completed a postgraduate degree in illustration at Brighton University. He published a series of screen printed books in the 90s that foregrounded his interest in chants and found compositional practices. He has exhibited painting, film and other work at galleries, including the London ICA and the Royal Standard in Liverpool. He completed a doctorate in fine art in 2019 on the vision of the absurd aesthetic machines, entanglement and effect. He is co-curator of the annual Sensorium Art Show in East London and lectures in art at the University of East London. However, since 1992, Mikey, also known as The Vessel, has been associated with glam-inspired indie art rock band David Devont and his spirit wife, whose 1997 album Work, Love Life Miscellaneous hit the cassette shelves and CD racks of music stores 25 years ago this year. The live tour that supported the album release was notable for its glam theatricalities, surrealist projections and general sense of onstage fun. I wonder if we might start off by talking about 
your music first, Mikey, before we cover some of our other topics. How does a painter and illustrator find himself fronting a glam Bowie-inspired art band in the early 90s? Uh, well, backwards causality um, is the simple way of explaining that. Um, I mean, you, you refer to it as chance, I suppose. Um, but I, I refer to it as a sort of performative immersion in uh, the processual nature of, of living. And that's what Brighton opened up onto for me. Um, and I'm sure I would have had many um, interesting discussions, particularly with the Iceman, about that being the process that took place. But uh, I learnt a lot from the fellow band members. It was almost like my new found foundation course, joining the band during my part-time MA at Brighton, uh, because I had grown up with a father who sung me to sleep with uh, gruesome folk tunes of death and the macabre as and it and uh, the cocaine blues, songs like that. That big. It sort of taught me that song was a normal way of e expressing meaning. Uh, but at that point, when I when I became part of the interrelational thing that is David Devon and his spirit wife, I had sort of abandoned the idea that I would be a musician, having been in bands uh, throughout my teenage years and supported people like the Go-Betweens and the House Martins. I then went to art college and thought, you know, uh, this is my career path. I'm going to do art and illustration. But um, in Brighton, there was what I now describe as an aesthetic ontology in that the, we entangled with the place and each other and the apparatus of art and knowledge and community. And suddenly I felt I could write songs about anything because it became a means of expressing meaning um, almost as if the meaning was coming back to me from my future self uh, so the the idea of me being the vessel was a completely intuitive thing of making sense of the band name but um, it, it continues to resonate in the sense that I see my role as one of uh, of pre-personal state of uh you know flesh body but i'm it, it's not my uh value identity so that's that's how i started making music you know and it, it was uh joyful pleasure of uh collaborating really and There's being part a sense, yeah. i think of the early david devant stuff particularly yeah. of a sense of fun, actually, both in the live performances, in the gigs particularly, but also on some of the tracks in the album Work, Love, Life, Miscellaneous. A real sense yeah. of fun, enjoyment, yeah. a sense of sharing a pleasure with with the listener, with the audience. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I continue to learn about the importance of pleasure as part of the expressivity of being a multi-organism human um you know sort of free of the striated 
realm uh, that we all experience every day and are feeling even more so at the moment, I suspect, um, because of the sort of new hyper-Toryism which is coming in. You know, I'm, I'm not saying this as a political thing. It's more you know, trying to root myself as a person and have a sense of congruence. Um, so, yeah, that pleasure and not necessarily knowing what we're doing but finding the meaning through doing it. Yeah, um, so a yeah. kind of discovered meaning, a co-constructed meaning. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it, the, the this idea, you know, I called my doctorate aesthetic machines, you know, I, I had a problem with this idea of construction and making because I thought, oh, that's ultra rational. But actually, it's, you know, how does art work? How does it function within our lives? And uh, and that's what that is. Yeah, it's um, I also sort of think of it as this sense of material vitality of, you know, taking everything and making it matter for expression. Uh, and that is a kind of resistance to the thing that just wants to turn me into a, a value identity. Um, I suppose yeah. there's probably a story, too, about that resistance to the manufactured, the resistance to the machine in your decision to go for the name David Devon and his spirit wife at the time when other bands had names short enough to print as a single line of text on the cover of a cassette album. I wonder if you yeah. might say a little bit more about how you came to light on your name for uh, our audience. Well, um, yeah, I was talking to my friend Elaine Hamilton. She's a poet and I this morning and I'm working on a song with her and she mentioned choice and I said oh I, I'm not very big on decisions it, you know I sort of feel make so the, the 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 process that we went through is is led by uh, aesthetic intuition and um, so that again the pleasure all oh, that name David Devont and his spirit wife it feels nice to say it's giving me a felt intensity uh it's a kind of haptic haptic knowledge in there and um because i sort of trusted that it felt good and um the professor and i at that time you know it was pre-internet so we'd have to go to the theater museum in covent garden to research david devont because we felt that as we were called david devont and his spirit wife we ought to find out about the man who was so, this man, David Avant, this mysterious um, person? Well, he was very unmysterious uh, during his career. He was perhaps the most famous magician in the world, um, probably, well, certainly in Britain. And he sadly died in 1941 in the Putney Home for the Incurables. Uh, which is something I used to drive past, and I'm sure they used to still have the sign, partly home for the incurables. It's since gone. But, uh, yeah, he died there of what I think was a Parkinson's-related disease, which, uh, as a magician, is especially tragic. And, uh, yeah, so that incurable was actually a B-side to uh, Radar by David Devont and his spirit wife. Um, he was also one of the first filmed magicians um, in this country. So that sort of uh, intra-relation intra with, with film and projection and magic 
and the material vitality of virtual technology, which is something that really interests me, you know, being able to engage with the agency of the apparatus uh, and they, it's a playful thing. And I, I think those magicians at the time uh, really um, immerse themselves in that. So, yeah, that's it. I mean, I could, he was also, uh, interestingly enough, involved with um, a man called Masculine, who, along with David Devont, tried to disprove the spiritualists of the day. So in the Illustrated London News, there was quite a lot of coverage about Masculine's challenge to spiritualists to make a ghost appear. And uh, and he would make a ghost appear using artificial conjuring methods, uh, which to me is very interesting because I think both the spiritualists and and the conjurers are really an opening to uh, what I quite complicatedly call an, an aesthetic ontology. You know, a, a means of felt understanding that is an excess of the uh, civilized conceptual value of things, which which robs it of the felt enactment. Um, so, you know, both going to see a magic show that's a conjurer or a spiritualist, they, they put you in that realm of a visceral radical experience. Um, yeah, through, and I, you know, I like to think that's what we did. <laughs> I don't think we ever sat down and said, "Right, let's make a visceral radical experience." Um, but <laughs> uh, looking back, uh, there's this kind of atmosphere that I am unable to unpack. And I remember a journalist at the time who was not particularly a fan of ours saying that one of our gigs was like being in a children's game where you don't know the rules. Um, so the only rule is trust and um, immersing yourself in, in the felt understanding of the ritual, because in a ritual, no one really knows the rules. They just feel the understanding. And yeah, have we become these uh, intrarelational multiple organisms, which we are. Um, but more of that later, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if I wonder if before we drift off into abstraction, we might play "This Is for Real." Yeah, just to keep us grounded. Uh, so, absolutely. Well, I mean, Christopher, what I always have to remind myself, and I meant to say this quite early on, is I read in a book called The Midnight Library. It said uh, you can either try to understand life or you can live it. And what I'm currently interested in is how you can live as a means of understanding. And that is the radical position. So this is for real. Because I, I think that the, the civilised hypertory world is abstraction. And I'd rather live in an extra embodied world, uh, which, is, which is for real. <laughs> so, Perfect. Well, yeah. let's let's listen to one embodiment of this reality then that was David Devon and his spirit wife in the yeah. late nineties. This comes from the track work uh, from the album Work Love Life Miscellaneous. It's a rare thing for me to play a music track on Teachers yeah. Talk Radio listeners. So here we are. This is what we were listening to yeah. in nineteen ninety seven. This is for real. 
Josephine and Shirley were the girls that I liked best. But now I see their lovers are both buried in a chest. Their father built the rockery that hit their little crime. Now Shirley's doing magazines and Daddy's doing time. But it makes him laugh, ha-ha, and the world laughs with him. He never would have guessed she'd get it right. He never would have guessed that she'd turn out so bright. Now it don't take a minute. And I also remember when I was writing, you know, the main part of that song, the outro was actually uh, a jam from the band. Um, and it's clearly the highlight of the song. But uh, the idea of this is for real, I do remember just saying to Foz, the guitarist one day, do you ever wake up and think, oh, this is for real? <laughs> and so, yeah. And uh, I can't remember. I think I, at the time, because I was quite a young chap, was sort of describing that 
uh, with trepidation and uh and he was saying no it's a good thing and uh, i would agree with that you know it's like trying to to remember you are an extra embodied person and your life is emerging and uh it's not a delusional thing to think about engaging with it as a sort of emerging fiction fiction i don't, as... think, I don't think there is I, th I think you're right about that this, particularly in those teenage years, you know, you're growing through teenage experience. You're, you're kind of half in the adult world and half still with a foot in childhood. I think. Um, yeah. When when you sat down with the other band members, how much of the creative process as a musician was reliant on found materials, and how much was it about a craft and process? Um, I think it's all of that. And and now I like to think, you know, that I've got a lot of em what I think of as extra embodied uh, process. You know, what I mean by extra embodied, it, it's relational. It's never, you know, nothing is an abstraction. It's always to do with the specificity of the event, you know, the event of life emerging. So um, I would say I, you know, I can't fully unpack it because that would not be true. It's, it's, uh, you know, David Devont began in the front room of my house in Brighton, Stafford Road, under Dolly and Ivy, who were two old sisters, uh, with the professor. And I would sing songs by just looking around the room and, and incorporating those objects into the songs. And so it, that, sort of demonstrates how it it's uh, a way of sort of being singular plural you know attaching myself to where I am and who I'm with um, but you know within that there is a craft that's that's where I was sort of getting to really is that now when I sing and perform I trust that and whatever comes out comes out uh, because I've got that experience of having performed and written songs, so I'm I'm often inspired by William Blake's idea that you know he doesn't want to reason and judge; he wants to create. Um, and I, you know, my judgment, if there is one, is just to trust what's what's emerging and to follow it. And uh, yeah, William so. Blake is certainly an interesting. Um person to bring up here in this conversation because of course you haven't just produced music with David Devon and his spirit wife you've explored music in a range of other personas too I wonder how that yeah. fits into your sense of identity as a kind of yeah. performative fiction uh, well absolutely yeah and I think um you know William Blake is he is uh revered in certain uh, realms, but uh, not anywhere near as much as he really ought to be. And I, my personal feeling about that is that he, he, because of his um, radical felt aesthetic ontology, he doesn't fit within an institutional framework of understanding, which requires us to sort of constantly step outside to an analyze. And, you know, Blake is very much trying to understand from what I call within the event, from uh, the emerging uh, 
in, intersubjective experience of life. And, uh, so that to me is uh, it's very inspiring you know he, i don't he he wasn't one of these people that subscribes to the idea that poets are these sort of peripheral people he thought we were all poets and we all have the ability to have a lyrical encounter with life um which uh, is where empathy comes from of course so uh yeah i mean it yeah. also comes out in his multi-voicedness i mean to a degree william blake is essentially a ventriloquist isn't he the the speaker yeah. of the speaker of <laughs> the thing we now call, think of as jerusalem and the speaker of songs of innocence and songs of experience yeah are yeah not the same voice at all um well that that's interesting <laughs> yeah uh yeah i i mean i i think there's a danger of analysing Blake from within, you know, too, too classical a framework, and he's about expressivity. So I don't think it's a contradiction for him to have other voices. You know, he's processual. It's about the radical experience, and for him to write short and uh, pithy poems and these long epics. I don't find any contradiction in that. And Blake himself, you know, talks about that sort of forking of human reason that robs it of its embodied experience. Um, yeah, in the poem, the, the Human Abstract, he talks about the tree-like brain and, um, you know, the perils of solely subscribing to that. So, uh, yes um i in fact my uh, my feelings about what i now refer to as meaning inside the event um which i've sort of taken from a book called nature's event by didier de bays who's um who was writing about another person <laughs> called alfred north whitehead but um i was reading out jerusalem uh, for a film that i made for an event called unpacking blake and um, because I was in my studio reading out the poem and it was a section that was all about the senses and it was what you, you might think of as hyperesthetic. And I suddenly felt that I understood the poem in a fully extra embodied way. And I understood that Blake is actually cre creating an opening to that uh, radical empirical you know all the senses not just as data but as an excess beyond that sort of classical idea of the brain outside of nature you understand blake from within it within the event of uh the fully embodied spoken lyricism of it and uh yeah it was a profound moment for me and a pleasure to have been invited to make that film that gave me the opportunity to experience that. Yeah, so it's a good test, I find, when I'm meeting a new colleague who's going to be teaching English to ask them what their opinion on Blake is. It's a, yeah. usually a, a good way of identifying precisely how well we're going to get on for the next uh, okay. however many years. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know T.S. Eliot said, to paraphrase it badly, you know, that if Blake had had a more 
classical grounding. He'd have been a great poet. But to me, the what Blake did uh, that made him truly great was that he reimagined what a system could be as, and essentially it's a system with feeling as its most fundamental characteristic. So it's mm. very different to a Socratic kind of system. It's a felt understanding. And um, so, it, so it has an embodied experiential meaning. And yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that I think he's very uh, significant because of that. And uh, I, I mean, we all embody Blake, don't we, when we're singing Jerusalem. Hmm. Um, Perhaps but, not in the uh, way he would like us to. <laughs> yes, that yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's an irony. But I did. I mean, I uh, I do think the thing about all creative acts is that they kind of open up onto that realm of um, of the excess, you know, of the precognitive human or non-human intra-relational performative way of understanding. So, yeah, even though it might be sung in a patriotic way at a rugby match, I still think it could open on, it does open on to that. And it's not wholly a jingoistic act. Hmm. There's, uh, within that ritual, we share another mode or, you know, as a, another part of what Blake thinks of the fourfold vision. Um, yeah. <laughs> Blake, of course, was working um, in those two, well, I suppose three media, really, the the medium of the the spoken word, but with a particular kind of musicality, particularly if we're thinking of something like songs of experience, and also in the visual arts. So how do you make yeah. the transition then from a 90s indie band member, then working through um, subsequent music projects taking you in different directions yeah. to then working in art teaching. How do you make that kind of transition? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think, well, if you think about Blake, I think everything he does in a way, you could see it as a song, you know, because the song is an event. And uh, within that, we find we find the meaning as, um, as this excess that I keep uh, referring to, you know, the non-linguistic felt intensity of the meaning. So uh, I don't, I honestly don't uh, see any difference between song and making an installation. In fact, um, you know, being in David Devont and his spirit wife with so many, with all the talented people in it, uh, you know, over the years I've, I, I, partly because I did the doctorate, I was able to sort of try and understand what was happening. And through finding um, a kind of delusional state of, uh, of being, I, I was able to think, oh, well, actually, uh, writing a song, writing a poem, building an egg out of uh, laser cut plywood, hanging silk um it's it's all part of uh, vibrant matter and the the collaboration with materials so it it was a wonderful point i mean 
when I started the doctorate, I was quite frustrated and um, a little bit depressed or put upon by what I felt was an overly academic uh, classical way of looking at things and, you know, mm -hmm. thinking, oh, well, art should be about something and uh, here's an issue, let's make art about it instead of encountering art as a kind of alien entity from which we can grow and learn and entangle with. So uh, I made a project called The Dead Ends, and that was a film that was shown at the ICA. But through mo making that, uh, largely thanks to working with my supervisor, John Smith, who's an, an absolutely amazing filmmaker, who used his own voice. So I, I began to think, oh, I, I can enfold my own voice into my art because uh, I enjoy doing that. It's a pleasure. And pleasure is actually... Uh, an emergent, dynamic, expressive thing. So, um, yeah, that that's kind of what I entangled with. Really, is is bringing all what I call my capacities into the the process of making, and and not uh, discounting them. You know, I was I, there was a period where I was quite frustrated because I was a painter with a gallery, and they thought, "Oh, you're also a singer," so that became like an asset. So, mm. uh, you know, I I became interested in um, just like the stage maker bird, bringing them all together and creating something experiential. And how does this? Um... Dewey project that you've been involved with recently fit into this narrative? Oh, yeah. I, you, I presume you're, Christopher, you're referring to the Dewey Decimal Project, which, um, you know, I've been lucky enough to be able to run that um, at the University of East London on the foundation course for a number of years. And rather like um, the process of being in David Devont, I thought, oh, this feels like a good idea. Uh, there were several strands at play because I, I, at the time I enjoyed uh, using the library. I've always used using the library in quite an intuitive and uh, without any sort of pre-given agenda, just intuitively finding things in the library which become matter for vibrant matter and in fact you know that the the fact that we are called david mont and his spirit wife comes from the fact that i was in a library and i found a book on magic and uh, i found a picture that struck me as uh you know exciting there was a kind of uh, hyper aesthetic to it, you know, of a man levitating a woman in front of him. And it said, David Devont and his spirit wife. Um, and so that came from the library. So the Dewey Decimal Project, I wanted students to be able to go into the library and, and feel empowered, feel they had agency, which is uh, an embodied experience. It's not just a, a coded uh, virtual external thing. So I devised the project, uh, the Dewey Decimal Project, which involved turning your name into a numerological value. So I like the idea that we're using this thing, which is seen as non-intellectual, as soothsaying, 
Um, so it's immediately creating a sort of non-orientable space. It's um, it's liminal and it's it's not accepted academic wisdom. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the ritual entangles you into the process and gives you a sense of sort of intersubjective belonging that it's part, it, you know, it's your name, your name entangles you in that process. So um, shall I go on about the Dewey Decimal Project? Because <laughs> that's just Are a small part yes, of it. Yes, I'm quite interested in the actual creative process and what the students made of it. So what were you asking yeah. the students to do? And yes. How did they respond to it? Yeah, so once, once you've got your name as a numerological value, you then have to uh, make dowsing apparatus uh which i again you know i remember my dad showing me how to make a dowser and i think my dad he he was an academic but he was much more uh of a reasoned cognitive and an artist you know person than than i am than what i am christopher i you know i i like to, i am slightly stupid but i feel like i'm more clever when i am extra embodied you know i use <laughs> processual methods uh you know i entangle with the agency of the things around me it makes me cleverer but uh, it's not angels in the trees yeah, well i mean we we may laugh but i you know i i think actually there there is a truth in it you know there's there's a limit to human cognition anyway we digress but the project is about how those limits of uh the sort of conceptual cognitive framework actually can inhibit the agency of young people who are not taught to nurture their intuition because it's seen as something a bit airy fairy and not really to do with the real world but uh it's entirely to do with the real world and i think there's a danger that it is that value of uh enactment and animation of entangling with people is is taken out of our lives um so they've got the dowser uh so then they find the shelf with their numerological number through the dewey decimal system and they find the row of books with that number on and they use the dowsers to find three books and um, i recently discovered uh, an engineer talking about how he uses dowsing as part of his job and he's trained himself to use it and he openly says that dowsing is a way of uh, augmenting your intuition so rather than it being strictly specifically about finding water, it's also about becoming aware of your embodied intuition of a place. So I encourage the students before they douse to uh, just sort of get to know the space that they're in. So they've gone through uh, what I now understand as a sort of uh, a trance ritual occasion, uh, which creates a space and I that I'm familiar with because I wake up early every morning and I write three pages and I now see that as a trance ritual space because a lot of the writing seems to go beyond what I cognitively think I'm capable of and I thought oh that's quite interesting so once they've got their three books from dowsing they they tap them three times on the spine and they open each one 
on a double page spread and they absorb the information and then they're asked to make a clay effigy object as a means of translating that information and that is partly inspired by uh, a book that I read when I devised the project called Making is Connecting. Um, it's a lecturer at Westminster that wrote it and his name escapes me at the moment. But uh, it's this idea of sharing and verifying an encounter through making and part of that expanding your agency by being able to share what you've made and talk about it. So once they've done that, they write a report because I remember loving science at school where you write title, apparatus, method, pro, uh, method, result, conclusion. So That's totally um, bizarre because yeah. I, I once actually taught an English lesson like that when we were dissecting Jekyll and Hyde. Oh, I'd wow. been re-roomed to a science lab with nothing. Yeah. I needed in front of me. <laughs> so we did exactly the same thing. We took a literary text. I said, right, the apparatus is the book, the table, the pen, you know. Yeah. The results are what you find in these three pages, you know, yeah. what's happening to Jekyll here. Brilliant. I mean, I, I think, you know, and one, I try not to be too fanatical about my own processes or my personal sense of congruence through engaging through uh experiential trust and non uh foreclosing you know encountering the unknown mm. but i do think that um there is something about using processual things which puts aside your sort of ascribed value identity and you're able to engage with your full self um that's what I seem to have experienced because we have, I have, I know teachers must always say it, but I have been blown away by the presentations that people have made. So what kind of clay objects have come out of this process then? What kind of range of things have you seen? Uh, myriad wonders, Christopher. Yeah, myriad. Um, yeah, I suppose... Um, what stays with me is not so much the objects but the presentation of them and seeing the people sort of fill into their embodied selves and people that I considered to be nervous and not really forthcoming with ideas suddenly are at the front of the class as if they're leading the session. Talking about something that is not to do with art um, and not anything really to do with what they saw themselves as coming to university to study. But as many people in academia seem to believe, and I, and I do, you know, it's about learning to learn and taking that through your whole life and being able to share and verify that and use it as part of being in an adaptive, empathetic person. Um, and there's been profound moments of synchronicity with there was um i you know it's quite a delicate subject matter but uh one of the ones that stayed with me most powerfully last year um 
my my a week before the presentation, less than that, a few days, my my own father, who was my art teacher and the musician that uh, brought me into the realm of song, he passed away. And uh, my whole family, we were with him. So we felt blessed to be able to be there in this uh, very powerful and you know entangled situation it was profound you know it it was an opening to the event that is uh the us in the cosmos but you know i had to go to work and there was this uh shy student came in and uh his books that he'd found led him to be at the front of the class talking about how uh, the sort of institutional process of death means that people dying alone in hospitals is far more common than ever. And uh, so I took a lot of comfort from that just a few days after the event. Strangely, the other thing he talked about was Leonardo da Vinci. And one of the things my father used to do was to imagine Leonardo was sitting next to him and describing the world around him. Because my dad always used to think of Leonardo's curiosity for understanding the world as inspirational, seeing it as emergent and fresh. So, yeah, that was just uh, one of the synchronicities but whenever we do that project it, it seems to be from start to finish you know our jaws are all dropping at the synchronicity of things that people are discussing um mm. in in this in in the event so i wonder if we might return to this same theme after the news and then we we could develop that idea of i think this kind of balance between teachers and learners as givers and takers in this process. Um, because I think that's a really kind of interesting area for us to explore. Absolutely. Yes. So we'll go, we'll go to the news. <laughs> Let's and then have we some will, news. Yeah. We will wrap up, uh, remind ourselves of the real world outside as well in a different yep. way. Yes. And um, return to this conversation <laughs> in a few minutes. Okay. Speak to you soon. Hi. I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators, Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload and wellbeing in school. You'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers, including Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger and many more. There'll be talks, workshops and time to network with like-minded colleagues. We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch and all the refreshments. You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care.
They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. ITV News reports on the three dads walking as the men continue their 600-mile walk across the UK and Northern Ireland. Andy Airy from Cumbria, Mike Palmer from Greater Manchester and Tim Owen from Norfolk came together after their daughters took their own lives. This challenge is their second walking challenge and their key aim is to get suicide prevention on the national curriculum. Mike Palmer believes that many young people aren't really equipped with the life skills to keep them safe in later life. Their 300 mile challenge last year saw them raise almost a million pounds for suicide prevention charity Papyrus, but this time they're walking to all four UK parliaments to secure support for changes to school curriculums. Former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn has attended an event in Manchester which focused on some of the hardships faced by students in higher education. He spoke at the Right to Clothing campaign launch at University of Manchester and urged the government not to forget students in the cost of living crisis. The campaign itself aims to raise awareness of clothing deprivation and provide clothing directly to those in need. Dr Luke Graham, a University of Manchester academic, said Whilst other deprivations are highly publicised and visible in the UK public consciousness, the same is not true of clothing deprivation. Further details of the campaign can be found on the Right to Clothing campaign website. Between the 20th of September and the 2nd of October, many schools will recognise British Food Fortnight with a series of events. Warwickshire County Council published details of events on offer in its schools, including chances for parents and families to learn more about where food comes from, as well as enjoying Britain's best seasonal and locally sourced products. The project aims to get children excited about food produced regionally and nationally. The event has been organised by Love British Food and has been going for 20 years. This year, the event also hopes to raise awareness of the benefits of short supply chains in reducing environmental impact as well as cost. The TES magazine features an article on Gaelic education in Scotland. With many families now wanting their children to learn in Gaelic, the article explores whether enough has been done to harness that enthusiasm. Half of Scottish councils offer primary Gaelic medium education, almost 40 years after the first primary unit was established in 1985. Figures also show that over 3,500 primary pupils are taught through the medium of Gaelic and that many others are drawn to the language. Data from Duolingo, a language learning app, suggests that by February 2022, over a million people had accessed the Gaelic course. The full article is available in the TES magazine. Finally, the former governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria, Lamido Sanusi, has made a passionate call for scaling up girls' education in sub-Saharan Africa. He spoke at a three-day Transforming Education Summit. He pointed out that providing girls with education and the opportunity to earn income was a single silver bullet to improve socio-economic issues and make progress towards breaking the cycle of illiteracy and poverty. He stated his regret that there is currently a deficit of 69 million teachers globally, 
and added that many of those that work in sub-Saharan Africa, South Africa and Southern Asia lack basic qualifications and training. Sanusi believes teachers are a powerful force, but they could not deliver quality education without training. He launched a project in 2020 with the aim of supporting ordinary teachers in developing their skills, according to a report on the This Day website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I was asked in a tweet, why does switching off and on again work? The answer is actually incredibly simple. Kind of. Every program running on your computer or device needs to load into main memory, what we know as RAM, in order to be fetched, decoded and executed by the processor. Now before you fall asleep, what that means is as you open and run multiple applications, more and more data is having to be processed. Different programs running will have different priorities, meaning some are more important than others. Things like typing on the keyboard, for example, will stop anything else and be processed first because you, the user, will expect to see a character appear on the screen. And if you don't, well, you'll press the key again and then press it again harder and suddenly get a splurge of gibberish on your screen that you'll then have to deal with. Sometimes programs don't behave, like the person in rush hour who indicates right at a roundabout then slingshots for a left turn. They get ahead of the queue, but at the cost of the other drivers waiting properly. What I'm trying to say is lots of apps are running and there's lots of queues waiting to be processed. So switching off and on again is like resetting everything, clearing the memory and allowing the programs you need to run more efficiently. Now my question to you is, do you leave your laptop on? so it's ready in the morning. Is it running slower than others? Why not try a power cycle? You know, switch it off and on again. TT Radio 2022. Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back to our show on music, art and teaching with Mikey Georgian, musician, artist and lecturer. In the opening section of the show, we considered the relationship between composition, performance and creativity. In the last part of the show, Mikey, I'd like us to explore your work as an art lecturer, which we started doing just before the news, and the creative relationships you're able to cultivate with your students as they seek to find their own creative voices. What does fine art teaching in the UK university sector look like at the moment? <laughs> yeah, I can only talk from my specific experience, I suppose. Um, and at the University of East London, I've always really enjoyed its uh, specific identity, which is particularly vibrant and experimental and what you might call uh, liminal, you know, because we're out right on the edge of London. So there's not a sort of mono affective imagination at work. You know, there's a whole load of uh, a multiplicity of uh, viewpoints, all of which are capable of expressivity within, within the course. And uh, I think all the staff where we are, we do try and work you know, from the intersubjective experience of the students, um, because they're not all as cosmic as me. You know, some people will want to work uh, in in a more orthodox way. You know, the technical skill of painting, but it's about finding a way of uh, enabling their capacities to come out 
I, I, you know, I can only say I've worked predominantly on a foundation course, so I am able to work across and and more generally with the just the emergence of uh, creative agency rather than trying to direct people to uh, a vocational channel. But um, yes, I mean, I think I think we are hopefully um, noticing a turn towards affect and feeling because the whole problem of you know the modern and the postmodern, where we, due to our sort of entanglement with classical epistemology, we sort of removed that from the equation and. And it even in interpreted people like Deleuze as 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 purely conceptual, when the whole point of what they're saying is that we need to find a shift from the communication model to expressivity, um, and and because the University of London, East London, is is so diverse, it does open up to the other voices and other wo other may. Uh, other modes of expression. Uh, you know, I, I've become particularly inspired by a writer called uh, Fred Moten, who writes about a black film, uh, a black filmmaker called Arthur Jaffa. And, um, and I would place his ideas alongside the, the way Blake tried to encourage us all to find the lyrical voice within us and that that i think is what i think art can open on to and what i hope i'm able to contribute to uh what is ostensibly an academic process but uh, you know i was lucky enough about 12 years ago through the university to do an artist group with grayson perry and his wife philippa and that really did open me up to this idea that art college can give you access to something that develops your capacities and and to go back to fred moton you know what what he's talking about um he, you know he calls it black study and arthur jaffa the filmmaker says his audience is a black audience and when i heard that um it challenged me because i i thought ah oh, this is this is coming from somewhere else. It's asking me to engage with something other that is not pre-given, not to foreclose. And um, Fred Moten says, black study is the soul of the thing, a thinking, feeling, enactment, an animation of flesh by the way of a radical empiricism that some might call delusional. Um, so, that, you know, that's what I bring to the table. And if you can think of the table as that ritualistic encounter with the event, um, uh, well, or at least that's what I try to do. That's where my personal congruence within the process of teaching art comes from. And how does your understanding of the concept of a foundation course fit into this sense of helping students develop an identity? Because foundation courses can, of course, be a route into the yeah. uh, fine art degree that they may take later on. But they, how many of your students take that particular route as compared with other routes? 
Uh, well, we found that because of, uh, I suppose, coming out of my doctorate, my methodologies, you know, I apologize for some of the jargon that I use, but it's just, uh, I've hesitate to say the way I'm wired, but it's, you know, I'm comfortable using that, but my methodology, you know, it compresses, you know, making, thinking, doing, it's a methodology, but it was encouraging students to veer towards fine art. But mm. I actually think that that methodology is appropriate to all creative subjects if you want to expand your agency and capacities to to the maximum or uh well there is no limit really I, and i i suppose i'm talking from personal experience because you know if i hadn't met the people that i met in brighton and been in that region of creative emergence i would have stayed quite a sort of uh restricted illustrator uh, not it's not to demean that but um the expanded agency that came from that um emerging moment is something that i think you know some people do not have an idea of a cultural landscape and and i suppose as teachers we can help them to find that to encounter that to go into it and belong in it and and feel they're part of it literally part of it and uh, so how, how yeah. much are you involved in the decision making process as a as a mentor advisor as students are making decisions about what to put in final exhibitions or what to put in portfolios uh well that our foundation is quite unique in the sense that it's part of a degree uh, so most of our students stay with us so they don't have that uh, hyper compressed get a portfolio together by December hmm. which I, th I think is a shame and you know people talk about uh, foundations as being uh, tra transformative or what you might call transformative but uh, I think when I did my foundation, I did really experience that hyper-compressed thing of, oh, get a portfolio, decide what route you want to take. Um, I enjoyed the route I took, but I think I didn't have that um, resplendent entanglement that some people had on foundation. I did experience relief that I was sort of moving into a realm where I could think through making mm. and and use intuition and there would be a more what i now think of uh thanks to my supervisor tony sampson hello tony you know he uh, the the idea of the blur uh so uh the crisp synthesis of uh western epistemology western ways of knowing you know things are well defined and uh you know i can do that quite well but I sort of feel that through a sort of more blurred encounter, which is uh, an embodied enactment, uh, extra embodied, you know, I felt more dynamic and capable of more and a richer understanding, um, which hopefully is a more empathetic region to belong to. Um, yeah, so not, not detached um so yeah so it perhaps 
Christopher, you know, what I'm talking about is I want people to have that richness of the transformative experience that I had in in Brighton mm. when uh, I formed David, well, I, I was part of the forming of David Devon and his spirit wife. Um, Those yeah. are special years, aren't they? The, the period between sixth form and university, if yeah. you go straight into university after A-levels or yeah. MBQs or whichever course you've taken uh, these days, and that yeah. kind of sense of the foundation course as being you know, an, an entrance route to university, but a kind of continuation of the experimentation of sixth form life, I think. Yeah, I mean, if, um, I, I, uh, I, I value the, uh, teachers like yourself who obviously are involved in the the process of learning to learn, and they and you want to impart that and facilitate that, and yet at the same time, we all know there are a lot of pressures to hit targets which creates this idea of the pre-given knowledge and asking the teacher, what do you want from me? What am I required to do to pass? What is the right thing to do? And um, and and that occludes and inhibits this encounter with uh, something which is ostensibly regarded as unknown because of our knowledge systems. It's not unknown. It's just not a linguistic fixed pre-given coordinate um in in uh you know the information that undergrids our culture and i i think it's you know if we can help students feel how knowledge feels uh that that's an important learning process because there are things which are purely experiential and you you only know them through uh bodily encounter and and that to, to go back to what I was talking about right at the beginning about how I now trust what some people think of as stagecraft. You know, I I know how to do things, and you can unpack it to an extent. But your sense of agency and personal involvement in what you're doing comes from that intuitive knowledge and the the trust and confidence that has allowed that to happen. Yeah, I'm certainly interested in what you say about this, this sense of, it seems to me you're suggesting that where you are at the moment, there's a kind of, there's less of a focus on meeting those targets, perhaps, than might be the case at some other quite well-known University of London art colleges, which have been feeling under pressure of late. Um, yes, I mean, I I want to point out, you know, to, I want to point out, Christopher, you know, like uh, when, when I made the dead ends, I think I was really, really fed up with, uh, yeah, there must be a better word than classical epistemology, you know, the project civilization, you know, that way of knowing, it, it, it upset me because I did have much more than a nagging doubt that we're leaving something out. You know, I mm -hmm. felt very strongly we're leaving something out. But uh, through talking to... Tony Sampson, I I realised, you know, it's not a rejection of finer modes of understanding. They're all start part of the picture and, you know, an exam's an exam. It's part of what I now think of as the tapestry of the event. It can be woven into it, but to have it 
be part of uh, an event and a sense of congruence. It has to be woven into um, an ontology of feeling. And I think the targets completely um, vaporize that. I think that's the danger. So, uh, yeah, does that make sense to you? <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, so. you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not, well, I'm keen to point out, I am not rejecting finer modes of understanding. You know, I'm not a complete, uh, I'm not anti-intellectual. Um, no, and, I'm, and just, fact, I'm just thinking really, I suppose, more about, I, I mean, certainly in London, because everything, everything education, educational in London is more intense than it might be experienced elsewhere in the country. Yeah. That seems to me to be a, a particular drive at the moment in particularly London art colleges, to yeah. start thinking about more the process of the university as a machine uh, rather than the university as a kind of thinking, experiential yeah. uh, site of discovery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, it, this we all know, it, it, it's been going on a long, long time. Um, you know, talking from personal experience, my, my own son's finished a foundation and his course was... Uh, out of London, but validated by UAL. And uh, their marking was much lower than I would have expected it to be across the board. And uh, I have a colleague that works there and I, I was able to say, you know, we want to leave our students feeling uh, a sense of worth and a felt intensity to the to the progress and the processual individual initiatives that they've taken. And uh, and I want to give them a mark that reflects that rather than a mark that is a kind of separated representational idea that is essentially a projection. You know, I, I'm this is my speculative view, you know, that, that they're marking them in order to validate their institution rather than empower as we say you know give that student a real embodied sense of worth from what they've done um yeah that tension yeah. between i think the teacher's loyalty to their institution and the teacher's loyalty to the student has yeah. been around in schools for a long long time and seems yeah. to me now to be kind of creeping into universities or certainly has over the last five years or so. Yeah. I d yeah, I suppose a simple point, it's become complicated that UEL, UAL is validating courses beyond London. Um, so that's not a criticism, it's just pointing it out. Mm. It, it's the undergridding of what is an embodied creative processual um performative process of learning and i th i think that's problematic if we start to to let that run things too much and as particularly with a lot of our students we want to give them agency you know because they won't they won't have had the exposure to methods and processes um, so they need that space to experiment and find their their resonance through um, you know what what you call an intersubjective experience, which means being free to to not know what you're doing and to learn from what you're doing. 
So how does the East London of 2022 then differ from your experience of Brighton in the 1980s? Uh, well, because my course when I did the MA, um, it was actually only about nine of us on the course and it was part time. So mm. the course was very much about my experience of, of living in Brighton and having time to collaborate with, with the band as well as the course. Um, a lot of the course, because it was sequential illustration, was talking about films. And film I now really value as a, a kind of uh, opening onto uh, the collage assemblage way of thinking, which is 360 degree experiential and allows you to enter into the empathy of imagining that emerging fiction but it was quite funny that you know most most of what we talked about was was film and films like q the winged serpent about the pterodactyl that nested in uh, the chrysler building mm -hmm. uh, so yeah so so it was tremendous one of our tutors was the amazing george hardy who did a lot of covers for hip Diagnosis. So I think that that was another little seed in the sort of magic and wonder of, you know, the, the aesthetic experience of making records. Um, so, yeah, that, that was all in there. And I, I, I think, yeah, I was lucky in that I, I didn't feel too institutionally constrained by the experience. And I do want to give that to the students. I want them to, you know, the institution is there to help them. Mm. And so um, they should have a fully extra embodied experience of, with pleasure. And, and I use that word with caution because to me, pleasure is not wholly just easy. Pleasure mm. can be about an engagement with something unknown and challenging. And to, you know, use an analogy, you know, I spent my holiday in Somerset trying to find uh, largely in inaccessible coves. Um, so there was this mild element of peril, mm. but the pleasure of that engagement with the landscape and finding something that I, through experience and seeing it on the map and finding it, you, you know, there was that, that's research embodied research so um yes that pleasure as something that is not wholly comfortable mm. is uh yeah that, i'm interested in that really and i think because we you know as i say we live in this representational values of conceptual ideas of things it robs it of that experiential knowledge well, uh, yeah. listen, Mikey, it's certainly been a pleasure to have you on the show tonight. We we probably ought to bring things to an end fairly soon. Yeah. Um, I think there's probably a, a number of future shows that we could perhaps do, if you're interested, on the idea of the influence of particular teachers and the kind of paths our lives have taken since. Yeah. Because, you know, I've, I've certainly been influenced yeah. by a number of the writer teachers um, I was taught by at Sick Form. Uh, absolutely, um, and th those were particularly yeah. formative years. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Having you on, 
Well, it's been it's been a pleasure. I am aware, you know, like I uh, the the thing that I'm talking about, you know, living as a means of understanding. That's simple, but uh, you know, hopefully, it hasn't sounded too abstract. <laughs> this idea I don't of think so. I me- think our, I think meaning inside are, the event, yeah, and I think uh, are well used to the abstract on this show. Yeah, I I would like to squeeze in the uh, Fred Moten quote that kind of uh, resonates with David Devon and helping me make sense of what we did. Uh, Is that okay? Because I think it's relevant. It's very short. Yeah. Um, And, you know, again, this is within him talking about Arthur Jaffa, the filmmaker who says his audience is black and is part of black study. And I would relate that to Blake's radical position but anyway uh fred moton talks about this way of understanding he says let's call it the scene of empathy let's call it the hesitant sociological scene the scene of the incalculable rhythm the scene the scene of the undercommon and irregular heartbeat it is a scene neither of subjection nor objection looking with hearing is a kind of building with or bearing that's fantastic. That quote, looking, with looking hearing. with hearing, yeah, um, That's a so fantastic phrase, yeah, and yeah, which uh, having grown up all my life with hearing loss, which has got profoundly worse on one side, I, you know, I've become aware that 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 get, gave me a sort of blurring from the off, so it might have inoculated me to the crisp synthesis of uh, classical <laughs> epistemology and giving you but, a sense of the blur yeah but, but not as a bad thing as a no. as a richer expanded mode of understanding uh you know when i hear myself saying the richer expanded mode of understanding i think oh man you know because the actual understanding is in the feeling that mm. that's i suppose what i'm getting at well <laughs> Thank you very much, Mikey, for sharing your phenomenal artistic, musical and educational journey with us this evening. I think it's offered us all a truly fascinating glimpse into the composition process, a real sense of your continuing passion for supporting young artists in developing their talents and a curiosity on my part to see what surreal fruits emerge from your next musical adventures. Do you have any new music in development at the moment? I do, and uh, as you might, I don't know, I I love the contingent. Well, I've come to value that because, uh, you know, our band just came from a sort of a contingent idea, David Devon, his spirit wife. It wasn't a very planned thing. It was just a felt thing. So um, I've been experimenting, like many people, with AI uh, image creation um and describing my surreal morning drawings to the ai which makes the image and today it actually made an image where i felt like yes i've entangled with the agency of the apparatus and this feels like something that we're making together and the image uh i i thought oh that will be the cover of the album called brinkmanship by the vessel so I, I've never made an album by The Vessel, which is my name in David Von and the Spirit Wife. So uh, I do have a number of songs that are nearing uh, a, a state that I will be making them accessible. 
So, yeah, you heard it here first. So we'll watch this space. Well, yeah. <laughs> to my listeners, that's about all from me for this month. So thank you for listening and we'll speak again in October. We're going to close tonight with a track called Industry taken from the 2006 album All Will Be Revealed that Mikey released under the alter ego of Mr. Solo. Is that right, Mikey? That is correct, yes. Um, produced by John Klein, who was the Pope in David Devon and guitarist in Susie and the Banshees. And this, the song came from the idea, you know, about how, well, apples and uh, jet travel means that we buy a lot of apples from overseas. And uh, I, as an illustrator, I once illustrated an article about the variety of English apples. So the song itself is much more articulate than I am being at the moment. <laughs> and hopefully you will find the meaning inside the event of the said song, industry, yes. Perfect. Well, thank you again, Mikey, for your time this evening. It's been an absolutely fascinating show. And I hope you'll be back on a future show. I'd love long. to. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. I love the uh, interaction of all the different disciplines within this format. It's wonderful. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank, Thank you. you. And now here's industry. I wanted an apple, so I
listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.